You are listening to the Life Church podcast. To learn more about Life Church, including our gathering times at Fishers, Eagle Creek, Noblesville, Pendleton, or our Life Crew online, visit us at lifechurchin.com or follow the link in the description. Today's talk is from Scott Hagen. It is wonderful to be here at all the campuses here in uh, Indiana with Life Church and uh, to be with your pastor and uh, all these wonderful people that serve this great, great, great church. And just you can already feel when you walk around these places, uh, the hand of heaven is on this house. And uh, you've made the right choice, uh, not only by being here today, but by being here next week and the week after and being a part of this great, great network of churches at Life Church. So what an honor it is to be here. I get a chance to travel all over the United States. Most every weekend I'm in a different place. I've had this date circled because I've never been to this particular area of Indiana. I've been in Indianapolis many, many times, and it has just been a total delight already to see what the Lord is doing in this place. You know, I know we're about two weeks past Easter, um, but I just want to uh, draw you back there just for a moment. I was reading last week in Luke chapter 23 about that scene on Calvary. Christ is in the middle, the two thieves are to the right and to the left. I don't know if it was the left one or the right one who was initiating the conversation, but they were lobbying this kind of verbal tennis over the top or around Jesus. And both thieves were on the edge of the abyss. Uh, They knew that it was over. And the abyss has a powerful impact on the human psyche, the human soul. It would for any of us. Both of these thieves are right at the precipice of, of, uh, of eternity. They know it. And this abyss, this free fall into the unknown. Well, one of the thieves, he doubles down on his foolishness. He begins to spew some of the most um, irreverent and illogical, nonsensical uh, theology and philosophy of life. You would think he would come to his senses when you were at the edge of the abyss, but actually the exact opposite happened. He mocks Christ. He starts telling him and really offers Jesus the last temptation of Jesus was to save himself. And that's the great temptation and the great lie that the devil tells all of us is that we can save ourselves. And so Jesus knew that if he got off that cross with the 10,000 angels, that he would, he would miss his mission. And it would take his death and resurrection from the dead to seal the devil forever. And so this thief, as an instrument of the enemy, tries to get Jesus to save himself instead of saving the whole world. The other thief, as he's nearing the abyss, his heart begins to melt. He doesn't double down on his foolishness. He begins to think deeply about his own soul. And a shift happens, and he realizes his guilt and the innocence of the lamb that was hanging next to him. And then this thief makes the biggest decision any human being can make. It's a decision I hope everyone hearing this makes. And that's this decision. At some point, we have to stop talking to thieves. And we have to start talking to Jesus. Our world is in chaos because we're spending most of our time talking to other thieves. On social media, we're talking to other thieves, uh, you know, over a coffee or a beer. And all we're doing is talking ourselves into agreement with what the thief thinks. We have to take our eyes off the thief and put our eyes on Jesus. Start talking to him. Matter of fact, he's closer to you than the thief. Did you know that? He's near you. So this morning as we look to the word of God, 
I pray our hearts would be filled with all kinds of openness and hunger for the things that heaven has to us as we talk to Jesus this morning. Instead of talking to thieves, somebody say amen. Amen. I wish my bride was here. I've got a great little picture of my bride. Uh, this is from 1966. Uh, I love the little feminine wrist, the gleam in her eye. Very few things put a gleam in a woman's eye like that. I think God is showing Karen her future. I think this is what Karen sees. That's why she's smiling. Next photo. I think this is what has come to her mind, um, is a beautiful portrait of her future husband. Uh, that's me, the Fresno Airport, 1966. I got my little velvet pants on, patent leather shoes. My brother to my left has his prison outfit on. And they're all standing there. We're standing there in the heat of Fresno getting our picture taken. Well, those two little munchkins met uh, in 1981. We both had about 50 pounds of hair on our head. We fell in love. And this is what happens when those two little people found each other right there. So this is 40 years of marriage four kids and 11 grandchildren. I wanted, uh, when we had three kids, I wanted five grandchildren to make a basketball team. Then we had six, I go, hey, let's have a baseball team of nine. And then we had our 10th grandchild and I said, Lord, would you give us a football team? And he blessed us with our football team uh, this last year. So that's the hand of heaven upon our family. And again, so great, so great to be here. As we turn our hearts to 2 Kings 8, I wanna remind you of three leadership, kingdom leadership concepts. Uh, all of us have been called into spaces that only you and I can fill. Most of the time in this day and age, we find ourselves as the only Christian in the room. Even if you're not a Christian, I think the next three things I'm going to tell you are going to speak to your heart. And hopefully you're going to hang with me for the next few minutes through this entire message. I want to remind everyone in this room that first of all, nobody can hide their heart. Whatever fills, spills. Nobody can hide their heart. We can, you know, do smoke and mirrors and we can be a bobblehead and we can keep people from looking at us directly in the eye. But at the end of the day, none of us can hide our heart. Whatever fills, spills. Most of our day is uncontrolled. Most of our day is spontaneous. Most of our day, we are colliding with things, spilling out the insides of our soul to the world around us. I've chosen to fill that cup with the presence of the Lord and the Word of God. If I'm faking it, if I'm just simply presenting aura in a persona, I promise you something will come my way that's going to reveal what's on the inside because nobody can hide their heart. Whatever fills, spills. The second thing I would tell everybody on this wonderful Lord's Day is that nobody's success in this room is robbing your potential. Nobody's success. Now, I know that sounds like a, a, a fancy uh, slogan you would hear from Tony Robbins or some other life coach. Nothing wrong with those folks. But this is really a kingdom principle because most people operate from a place of scarcity, not abundance. That's why they have a hard time blessing those around them because they somehow feel that their success is robbing their potential. Nobody's success is robbing your potential. Imagine there's two little sailboats in the harbor in San Francisco or the Boston Harbor. One little sailboat is bobbing up and down, going nowhere. And the other boat goes by that boat at full speed. Imagine the boat bobbing up and down, yelling at the other boat, hey, stop stealing my wind. That other boat would say, put your sail up, dummy. There's plenty of wind in the harbor to sail more than one ship. 
because nobody's success is robbing our potential. On the day the church started, on that day of Pentecost, there was fire from heaven, but there was also this rushing mighty gale, this wind. We forget about the wind, but there was plenty of wind on that day to fill the, fill the sail of every talent, every church, every gift, every dream. Nobody's success is robbing your potential in this life in the Lord. Put your sail up, capture the wind. There's plenty of wind to sail every ship in the harbor. The last thing I would tell you is that if you think for too long about a missed opportunity, chances are you're going to miss the next one too. One of the great themes of the Bible is to look up, to look up. Why, why does the Bible tell us to look up? Why did the Bible tell Abram to look up? Because he was looking down. Why? Because he had made a major mistake in the first chapter of his leadership life. The Lord said, don't bring your relative, and he brought his nephew with him. So there was problems and quarrels and difficulties, and Abram realized that he had made a huge mistake early in his life. So he, he did what most human beings do. He said, let's cut, let's cut our losses and move on. But God... God's solution to our failures isn't to cut our losses and move on. He told Lot, if you go left, I'll go right. You go right, I'll go left. Imagine for the rest of his life, he only gets to be 50% of what he could have been. You get to live the half-life because of a screw-up early on. Abram, to his credit, he amends his ways, said, I, I disobeyed the Lord. He said, don't bring your relatives. I brought a nephew. Now I've separated, got my heart right. And the Lord said, I want you to look up. And Abram looks up and the Lord says, look north, south, east, and west. I'm giving you north, south, east, and west, not left or right. As you're watching and hearing this word today, if you feel like all you can ever live from this point forward is the half-life, you have to cut your losses and move on because of some terrible mistake you made early in your life. I want you to know that the kingdom of God is not built or based on the half-life. The Lord told Abraham, look up. You're going to go north, south, east, and west. You get four directions, not, not one. God is good. I want to put a word into your heart um, called magis. It's not a Bible word. It's a Latin word. It's a powerful word. It means better than before. Not better than you, but better than I was before. In a moment when we go to 2 Kings chapter 8, and we look at the life of the sojourner, I want us to remember that we cannot compare ourselves to each other. If I compare myself to you, I'll lose my way. What I'm doing is I'm closing the gap, not between you and me. I'm closing the gap between, on the inside of me, between who I am currently and the potential for who I can become. Magis means better than before, not better than you. It comes from a Latin origin, but it really is a powerful word that I can see all over, all over Scripture. I'm not comparing myself to people. I am allowing the Lord on the inside of my life to close the gap between who I am currently and the potential for who I can become. Let's jump ahead to 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 1. It says, Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life. So he's talking to a woman that four chapters earlier became very prominent throughout biblical history. Her story was traditional and typical. She was an older woman 
that had never given birth to a child. One of God's favorite things to do in the Bible was to give an older woman her first baby to prove that he had power to break barrenness, power to break famine. And so there was a lady that loved the Lord, her and her husband. They had a lot of money, and they used their money to build a prophet's chamber in their house. This is back in 2 Kings 4. And they built this room, and nowadays, whenever you see a church that has a house for a missionary or an evangelist, it all goes back. It all goes back to the origin of this lady in 2 Kings chapter 4, the Shunammite. So Elisha and his assistant Gehazi are spending the night. They come down in the morning. They're leaning in the doorway. They've got their Starbucks or whatever it is, their caribou, depending on what part of the country you're from. And they're drinking their coffee. Uh, Elisha's feeling grateful for all that this family has done for them. And he, he says to Gehazi, ask her what she needs. And so he asks and finds out that they're loaded. They don't need any money. And then Elisha, feeling some prophetic momentum, tells the woman, by this time next year, you're going to bear a son, calls out the gender and the time. She cries out, no, my Lord. Why would she say no? Because like many of us that sit in churches, we have an aspect of our history that we cannot reconcile. It's in a box in the attic. It's filled with broken pieces, broken pieces of our heart, broken glass. It's taped up, it's put away. It's simply marked on that box something God did for everyone else but didn't do for me. I don't know why God didn't answer my prayer. Why did God bless all these other people? But for some reason, God forgot me in this area. And for this woman, it was the fact that she had no children. She had come to grips with it. She loved God, but she said, no, don't go there. You're not going into that area of my heart, that painful space. But Elisha went in there and kind of danced on the broken glass. Lo and behold, the Bible says she gets pregnant. A little boy is born. This little boy grows up old enough to be at mama's lap and not old enough to be with his, fa his father in the field. He goes out maybe to deliver his lunch to dad. The Bible says that he cried out, my head, my head, and he falls down and dies. The shocking twist in the story. The boy dies. They take the dead boy from the mother's lap. The mother then places the dead boy in Elisha's bedroom, his visiting space, and said, this is your crisis of faith. She runs out to Elisha and said, did I not tell you no? You think I just wanted to get pregnant? Cut the umbilical cord, nurse. I wanted to raise a son that would be a warrior. Not, not one that would die early in his life. Why does God have the power to start things but not the power to finish it? Why does the devil always take over the story? You can understand her pain. Elisha is just as confused. He goes in, the dead boy's in his bed, and in a scene that is as bizarre as it gets, he lays on top of the boy and begins to pray. The Bible said the boy's body grew warm. Elisha gets up, and it says he goes back and forth. Why is he going back and forth? Because he put his hand on the doorknob. He wanted to run outside and cry revival. But he looks back, and he sees the boy's body is warm. It went from cold to warm. And he says, really, Lord, this is all we get? The only thing we get to do is turn a corpse into a coma? That's revival? So he lays down a second time. 
He lays, stays, and prays, and this time the boy's eyes jerk open and he sneezes seven times. Resurrection. Sometimes we got to lay, stay, and pray. Sometimes we have to do things multiple times the same way to see victory. So that little boy's raised from the dead. He's talking to this woman in chapter 8. Elisha said to the woman whose son he raised from, from the dead, Arise, woman, and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn. If you have your Bibles nearby, circle that word sojourn. For the Lord has called for a famine. It will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines for seven years. At the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. First of all, seriously, Lord? That's the word from the Lord? Go sojourn wherever you can sojourn for seven years? The word there is to wander. Just go do something for seven years. Seven years? My question to the woman when she returned, what have you been doing? Where you been? She said, I just been sojourning wherever I could sojourn in the land of the enemy. Seven prime years of your adult life. She goes, yeah, and I got nothing to show for it. I just lost seven years. Think of the mental battlefield. You were once so close with the Lord that he raised your kid from the dead. And now all the best the Lord can deliver you is a message to go sojourn wherever you can sojourn. Where have you been? There's so many people like this that sit in our churches. They were 30, now they're 44. They've gone through a business loss a marital loss, health, odyssey. They were on top of the world at 31, a spot on the lung, and suddenly for the next 12 years, they've been in an odyssey of cancer treatments, surgeries, loss of income. Now they're in their 40s, and they're finally free of cancer. But they go, I just lost 12 years of my life. I've been sojourning wherever I could sojourn. It's tough when the Lord calls us to seasons of sojourning because nobody in this life, first of all, gets to live a linear life. Nobody goes from point A to point B in an upward trajectory, friends. Nobody. I don't care what they appear to you. Don't compare yourself to people. God has all of us working on his greater story. We're all contributing to his story. My life is in his hands telling his story, not mine, his. Sometimes he needs faithful gratitude from a life that is blessed. Sometimes he needs faithful worship from one, <coughs> excuse me, like Stephen, who's dying from the stones, who died with a memory verse on his lips in the prime of life, died just like Jesus died, quoting Jesus in his final sentence. I don't know what your assignment is or my assignment is ultimately, but nobody goes from point A to point B in a straight blessed line. Nobody gets a linear existence. This woman, blessed, faithful, fulfilling vision, builds a room for the prophets, her visions coming true in ministry, finds herself pregnant, late in life, has a baby, 
It's going well. He drops dead. Then he's raised from the dead. Then the Lord said, go sojourn wherever you can sojourn for seven years. And so she returned. And all she wants after her season, because every one of us has a season as a sojourner. She returned from the land of the enemy. Her life is probably less, it is less than what it was when she left. Again, so many people look back over the last decade of their life. They go, man, I have more debt, more enemies, less harmony in my family. My health is worse. I've not given up on God. But man, I am confused. I've just been sojourning wherever I could sojourn. And then she comes back after seven years. And she goes to the king in verse 4. And all she wants in her weariness is her dirt back. I just need a second chance. I grew up preaching the God of a second chance. I believe in the God of a second chance. But what I'm about to show you is going to totally take that concept to a different level than simply chance. The Bible says, now, the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. He was the one back with Elisha when the boy died. And the king now was saying, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. The king is bored and wants to hear some killer stories from history. And he goes, I, I'm just, let's kill some. Tell me great stories about Elisha. And while Gehazi was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, a whole nother level of Bible crazy happens right here. Behold, the woman whose son he'd restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, my Lord, O king, here is the woman. She walks into her own story seven years later. Can you imagine? You walk into the king and he's, he's talking about you. He's talking about you. Every sojourner in this room, everybody who's been a wanderer, everyone who's trying to reconcile this distorted timeline of your life with God. You love him, but it doesn't make sense. I want you to know that whether we realize it or not, our life has never left the presence of the king. Our life has never left the throne. Gehazi is a type of Christ that's appealing and interceding before the throne day and night. She walks into the king's presence and her life is right there. Gehazi can't believe it. She just wants her dirt back. The house is probably trashed, weeds, broken shutters. It's a mess. Over seven years. She comes back with nothing to show for the seven years. For wherever you have been. Where have you been? I've just been sojourning in the land of the enemy for seven prime years of my adult life. Can I have my dirt back, King? Now let's bring this to a close. Here we go. When the king asked the woman in verse 6, she told him everything. 
saying. So the king then appointed an official. And here is something, I've read it, but I never saw it until just a few years ago. And it was a game changer for me in my Christian walk and how I speak and pray for people. Here it is. When the king asked the woman, she told him everything. So the king appointed an official for her saying, restore all that was hers together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Not just the field is restored, but the yield is returned. While she was sojourning, wandering in the land of the Philistines, thinking that she'd fallen off the radar of heaven, while she felt like nothing was being accomplished in her life, God was filling the barn, was filling the fields, growing the fields, it was being kept, and the Lord delivered to her the yield, not just the field. He's not just the God of a second chance. He's a God of restoration. I don't know how he does this. But friends, I'm here to tell you that when you love the Lord, when we serve the Lord, there are no lost years. No lost years. No lost years when we love the Lord. He gave her the yield, not just the field. I don't know how the Lord's timetable will work in your life. But I know that when we love him and trust him, that even when those lost years feel insurmountable, that at some point, the Lord, the King, he will deliver to you a reward, a blessing that you know not of. All that was going on behind the scenes that you were not seeing, God was doing. And he said, restore to her all the produce of the field from the day she left until the day she returned. I got four adult kids. We raised millennials. They're all in their 30s now. My third born son was the last to get married. His siblings were married and they were having kids. And he, he, was, he didn't even have a date. And his brothers and sisters are married with kids. He's 26. He said, Lord, Mom and Dad, why does anybody want me? He said, son, you know, we were parents. We loved him. We just made stuff up, prayed for him. And one day I came home, and I told him he could live at home as long as they were getting their, earning their degrees. He has two master's degrees. He was a Division I college quarterback. He's an unbelievable young man, but his love life wasn't working. So on his computer screen, he left his computer there, and I accidentally bumped the space bar. It was an accident. And uh, the screensaver popped up, and there was a girl. And I asked him, who's that beautiful young lady? He goes, oh, Dad, I don't know. She's got a, she's got a past, a big past. I said, well, son, tell me. He goes, I don't know, Dad. She's this past. I said, son, why do you think they call us pastors? We help people with their past. He came to tell me that she'd had a baby when she was 16 and another one when she was 19. And God brought those two lives together. And she hadn't been, she was a single two kids, early 20s. The following year, I stood on the state capitol in California and saw them marry. I stood there as these two little boys were on his leg, and I realized that while he thought he was unwanted, God was preparing in the barns, in the fields, two sons 
And on that day, they were delivered to him. And this young man who wanted to be a father, wanted to be a husband, had a miracle encounter. I want to pray for you. Today, if this has been a prophetic message for you, I just want you to bow your heart, close your eyes. I want you to welcome this story into your life. Jesus, for those that are watching this teaching today that have felt like sojourners, Lord, we ask today that you would lift their hearts with this powerful, timeless, eternal, immutable story and promise from the scripture. Lord, help us not to quit when we're sojourning, even for several years, in the prime of our life. Help us never to turn our back on you. I trust you, Jesus, right now to give the sojourners new strength, new hope. Lift them up. Tell them again this morning, you love them, Lord. And Lord, I don't know how you do it, but you're going to deliver to them the yield, not just the field. I pray for a new season, Jesus, of restoration in their lives. Christ's mighty name, amen. God bless you, friends. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us, share with a friend, and hit subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream your podcasts. Our mission is simple. Come to life, connect to grow, find your purpose, make a difference. Thanks for listening to the Life Church Podcast.